Well, good morning. Good morning. It's great to be here with you as we worship the Lord together this morning. If you have your Bibles, let's turn together to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, and verses 9 through 14 at this familiar parable. Luke, chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous And treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, in 1980, there was a country song by Mac Davis called It's Hard to Be Humble. Maybe some of you remember that song. And the the title sounds honorable and noble. But when you listen to the song, you realize he's actually getting at something else. You see, the lyrics are, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror. I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me. I must be a heck of a man. Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. You know, the song, of course, is meant to poke fun at people who think that they're perfect, but they're blind to their most obvious flaw. That is, their arrogance, their egotism, their selfishness. We, as a culture, we dislike people who are that way. We have several other phrases I've heard throughout the years. You know, you'll hear someone jokingly say, I thought I was wrong once, but I was mistaken. Or a personal favorite of mine, my friend used to say, you know, I used to be conceited, but now I'm perfect. And these things are humorous because they hit home to us, don't they? We've all been around people who would never actually say such a thing and mean it. But boy, the way they carry themselves, the way they live their lives, the way they talk about other people, they just exude that out of every part of their personality. And you know, when we think about it, the human condition in our fallen state as sinners, we are so prone to self-righteousness, self-centeredness, being egotistical. But you know, even if we're not outwardly arrogant like that, and I, I, I haven't met anyone here this morning who's that way, you, you're probably not that way, but we all are on one level somewhat insecure. We like to think that deep down there's something likable about us, good about us, that others should notice us when we do something good or if we get a new outfit of clothes or a new haircut. I don't have to worry about that. You won't know when I get a new haircut. And you know, we even want God to like us, don't we? We all fancy ourselves deep down pretty good. And boy, if you really just got to know me, you'd like me. We we tend to think those thoughts. We think that deep down, God, God knows us, He understands, and that 
we could just do enough to get on the good side of God, maybe he'll be impressed with us. Well, Jesus gives this parable to shatter that illusion, to destroy that myth. But I want to submit for you this morning, this this is a hard parable, but it's a parable of good news if you're like me this morning, who's a sinner in need of a Savior. This is good news for us. Jesus spoke this parable in Luke 18 to expose the sin of people who trusted in themselves, to expose their sin of self-righteousness. But he did it so that we would be provoked to examine our own hearts and to see that we need a Savior and to look to him because he offers forgiveness. Jesus wants to point us to God for mercy. And so this morning as we look at this parable, I want us to see two men... We see two prayers, and then we're going to see two verdicts. So if you're following along, I hope that'll help you follow here. We're going to see two men, two prayers, and then two verdicts. First, let's look at the two men. So the Lord sets before us a story of a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now, we're familiar with our Bibles. If you grew up in church or you've been to church very long or read much of the New Testament, you know that you see Pharisee and we think, ah, bad guys. And we see tax collectors and we think, oh, the good guys. But we need to step back just a second and hear this parable the way that Jesus' original hearers would have heard it. And so in Jesus' days, it would have actually been a twist to them. So let's just look at this briefly. So the Pharisees, who were the Pharisees? Well, they were the cream of the crop in Jewish life in Jesus' day. They were devout men. They studied the Scripture They taught the Scripture. They believed the Old Testament as God's Word. They didn't waver in the face of the moral decadence of their culture. Their aim was good and noble. They wanted to preserve God's people from becoming pagan like the Romans and the other Gentiles. You see, we don't really have a modern-day parallel because in those days, the civil leaders and the religious leaders were kind of one and the same. So if we wanted to do a a modern-day equivalent, it would be like um, a religious version of Ward Cleaver from Leave it to Beaver. Or maybe if you want to go, uh, I guess it would be like a mix between Billy Graham and Andy Griffith, okay? They were the good guys. If you were going to choose a neighborhood, you would want Pharisees for your neighbors. That's who you'd want for your neighbors. Because they wouldn't extort you, they wouldn't cheat you, they'd look after your property when you weren't there. But on the other hand, we have the tax collector. Now, the tax collectors were absolutely despised. And just like we don't have a category for the Pharisees, we really don't have a modern category for the tax collectors either. Because, you see, they were the scum of society. They were the Jews who abandoned their own people to go work for the pagan Roman Empire so they could make a quick buck and exploit the people around them. They were turncoats. They were Benedict Arnold's. I mean, we, the closest thing we could have as a modern-day example would be someone who defected from America to go work for ISIS and kill Christians. Or maybe someone like a drug dealer or a pimp or Bernie Madoff. And so the story begins with this odd twist that the tax collector is even in the temple praying. If Jesus' original hearers would have heard that and thought, the tax collector was in the temple praying, and God struck him dead and killed him for profaning the temple. That would have been a fitting end to this story. And so we have two very different figures. One at the top, 
a good guy in the temple praying. And then we have someone who's from the dregs of society who's in the temple also praying. So those are our two men. Then Jesus shows us their two prayers. And they couldn't be more different. Let's look first at the Pharisee's prayer. As you would expect, the Pharisee begins his prayer by paying homage to God. Let's look at it again. He says in verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. But as we examine his prayer more closely, even though he thanks God, we see that something is horribly amiss in his prayer, isn't it? You see, the Pharisee's prayer reveals a few things about his heart. One, he trusted in himself. Now Luke tells us that Jesus gave this parable against those who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous. We see that about this Pharisee. His prayer seems God-centered because he starts off by saying, God, I thank you. But he's not really focused on God at all, is he? No, instead he's just listing his own good qualities, listing his own virtues. He's congratulating himself. Patting himself on the back for being such a good guy. Lord, I vote the right way. I give to the right charities. I pull for the right ball club. What does he say? He doesn't commit adultery. He's not an extortioner. He's not unjust. He's not a treacherous tax collector. Those are all good things. Let me say to you this morning, it is good that you do not commit adultery. I highly recommend, I urge you in the name of God, don't commit adultery. Don't extort people. Don't be unjust. Those are all wonderful things, and they're good. But he's not really thanking God. He's focused on how good he is. Not only does he not do those things, listen to what he says he does. He fasts twice a week. He gives tithes of all his possessions. You see, the Pharisee's trying to make a couple points here. One, he's trying to tell you and me and everybody who would listen, including God, that he keeps the law. Oh yeah, that's right. He doesn't violate the Ten Commandments or the other laws found in Deuteronomy. He's, he's claiming for himself a moral purity. But secondly, he says he goes above and beyond the law. Notice, he says he fasts twice a week. You know, the law actually only prescribed one fast, one a year. And tithing wasn't for every single thing that came into your possession, no. Tithing was only for a man's crops and his livestock. In 2007, there was a Boy Scout named James Calderwood. His prayer kind of reminds me of this Boy Scout. You see, to become an Eagle Scout, you only need 21 merit badges. Now, that's pretty tough. It's very rare to somebody go through scouts all the way and become an Eagle Scout. If you did it, congratulations. That's tough work. Well, James Calderwood actually earned every single merit badge. He earned 122 So it takes 21 to be Eagle Scout. He earned 122. Can you imagine the sash he had? He actually had three of them that he had to sew together to hold all of his merit badges. It was pretty incredible. You see, the Pharisee's prayer here is kind of like that Boy Scout sash full of merit badges. Look at all I've done, God. But let's listen to his prayer again. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You know what stands out above his good deeds here is just how much he loves himself for it and just how highly he thinks of himself. He trusts in himself that he is righteous. 
But not only that, the second thing we see about his prayer is that he has contempt for others. He doesn't just love himself, he despises other people. It's not enough that he himself is not a murderer or an extortioner or unjust, an adulterer. No, he says, I thank you that I'm not like those other people that are all those things. The Pharisee seems to understand that God has a high standard of holiness. He seems to get that right, doesn't he? He knows those things are wrong. And he looks around him. He sees his culture. He sees the men and women of his day. And he sees that they've fallen into sin. And he's right about that. He's right that people have fallen into sin. But it doesn't break his heart, does he? No. It emboldens him in his pride. He looks down his nose at other people. You see, his sin is one of comparison. He sees the adulterers, the liars, the tax collectors. And he revels in how good he is. But the Pharisee omitted a few sins, didn't he? You know, his list is kind of convenient. He doesn't commit adultery. He's not an extortioner. He's not unjust. But he omitted a couple of sins. He omitted pride. He omitted self-righteousness. He omitted his own personal idolatry of his good works. St. Augustine, in commenting on this parable, said it's like a man who goes to the doctor. And he, he tells the doctor all the things that other people are sick with. Doctor, look at that guy. He's got chicken pox. He's got the flu. He's got a broken arm. And all the while, he doesn't realize that, that he's infected with terminal cancer. Now, I want us to be careful here. Because before we just set up the Pharisee as somebody to attack and ran against and rail against and say, Whew, look how terrible that Pharisee is. We've got to be careful we don't fall into his sin, which is contempt for others. How easy is it for us to justify ourselves and have contempt for other people who don't live the way we live or think the way we think or vote the way we vote? And just as the Pharisee had contempt for others, boy, it's easy to find ourselves saying, you know, I can't believe that angry neighbor of mine. You should hear the way he yells at his kids. I can't believe he would do that. Or, can you believe all those folks just living off the government on welfare and food stamps? You know, it's a shame people these days don't value hard work like I do and get a job. I find myself thinking that sometimes, I'll confess to you. You see, if we're not careful, we compare ourselves to others all the time. We have our standard that we think we do pretty good on, and we see other people not doing it. Boy, they don't budget the way I budget. You know, they don't save money the way I save money. And man, next thing you know, we're, uh, we're no different than this Pharisee. I just want to ask you, as I ask my own heart, where's the compassion for someone caught in a trespass? Where's the broken heart over someone who's caught in sin, who's been ensnared by it, who's been tricked by the devil into seeing that sin ha- seems to hold pleasure for a moment, and so they get trapped in it, and they're deceived by it. But you know, there's a flip side to this sin that we also need to be careful of because we live in a day where it's almost fashionable to be real or authentic about our sin. Let me explain what I mean here. You see, in our day and age, it seems that it's now become fashionable and good to talk about your own sin. I'm a sinner. Yes, I'm a sinner. Praise God. I know how filthy I am. I'm not like those self-righteous Pharisees. Oh boy. Because if you find yourself saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like one of those self-righteous Pharisees, that sounds an awful lot like the Pharisee's prayer, doesn't it? 
You see, in our quest to be real and authentic and not self-righteous, we can sometimes become hateful to other people that we think are too good or too holy, too set apart for God. The whole point of this is not to have contempt for other people at all. And so we need to tread lightly when we start thinking negatively of this Pharisee. The point of the Pharisee parable is not to see other people as the Pharisee. It's for Jesus to show us we're all this Pharisee. All of us are. It may be that you here this morning have great tolerance for all people except those whom you think are intolerant. Guess what? You're also a Pharisee. Now let me just say, maybe you've had Pharisees in your life who pop in to point out your sin to you. And it just rubs you the wrong way. There is a sin worse than being a Pharisee, though, and that's hating Pharisees. They need Jesus, just like tax collectors. And I want to say to you this morning, if you find yourself here this morning and and you identify with this Pharisee and you're you're pricked by your your sin of self-righteousness, there's hope for you. Hang on, we're getting to mercy, okay? Brothers and sisters, the bottom line in all this is the standard is not one another. The standard is God's holiness, and we all fall short. And we see there the third aspect of this Pharisee's prayer, and that is that he had ignorance of God. He loved himself, trusted himself, he had contempt for others, but at the end of the day, he just had ignorance of God. He didn't understand God's holiness. I love this banner. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God doesn't have hidden sins. God doesn't have moral lapses of judgment. He's perfectly pure in all He does, both in word, in deed, and even in motive. And you know, when Isaiah saw God high and lifted up and he heard, holy, 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 what he also heard was unholy, unholy, unholy. When he looked at himself, what does he say? I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. God's standard for human behavior is absolute perfect obedience. James chapter 2 verse 10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of breaking all of it. You see, the person who's pulled over by a policeman for speeding, you know, doing 90 and a 55, he can't look at the policeman and say, well, yeah, but I give to charity. And yeah, I didn't, I didn't murder anybody. Well, that may be true, but you're still speeding. And you know, A lot of times when we are quick to see the sin of others and slow to see the sin in our own life, it's because we don't rightly see the holiness of God, His moral purity and His beauty in His excellence. Seeing God's holiness shows us our sin. It shows us our need for forgiveness. This morning I want to say to you, if you have a time of confession in your life and you, you struggle to think back over sins maybe you've committed that day or, or that week. I've got two suggestions for you. One, go ask your wife. But number two, contemplate the holiness of God. He'll make His holiness apparent to you and your sin apparent to you. And what we see about this Pharisee's prayer is that he has no clue. He, he thinks he understands the moral code. But he doesn't understand the heart of God and what holiness really is. He thinks God will accept him on the basis of his own goodness. And let me just ask you, where are you this morning? Did you read this? Do you identify with this Pharisee? Well, let's look at the second person. The second man is the tax collector. Let's look at his prayer. Boy, his prayer is something else. 
It looks very different. Number one, his prayer is personal. He's not looking around at others. He doesn't compare himself to the Pharisee at all. He says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. So he's focused on himself. He doesn't care about the Pharisee. He doesn't care about any prostitutes that might be in that temple. He's not concerned with others but himself. Secondly, his prayer is penitent. That is, he's got sorrow over his sin. Matter of fact, we can say that he looks at his identity. He, sin defines who he is. You know, here he is. He's a Jew. He could have come in there and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a child of Abraham, who is one of your chosen people. But no, he didn't. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. When the prodigal son returns home, what does he do when he approaches the father? He says, make me as one of your hired servants. Because he had sinned. He just wanted to be a servant in the house of his father. He doesn't downplay his sin at all, does he? No, he's in anguish over it. He's in anguish. He beats his breast. He doesn't shrug it off and say, Lord, I'm a sinner, but you know, nobody's perfect, God, and I'm doing the best that I can. No. And he doesn't drag others down with him. He doesn't say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, just like everybody else. You see, that ultimately is the problem with the Pharisee. He's too busy comparing himself to others. We could learn a thing or two from this tax collector. to Be focused on our own sin first and foremost. Notice here too, he doesn't make excuses. He doesn't say, well, I'm actually a victim, Lord. You know, I, I know I'm a sinner, but when I was little, my parents got divorced. And you know, I was always picked last for Little League. And you know, I, I grew up slower and smaller. And I, I didn't get into the best college, so I had to find a way to make ends meet somehow. And you know, these tax collectors came along and they made me feel special and loved. And God, I was tricked. It's not my fault. No, no, he owns his sin. It's his. He's not a victim. Sin has victimized his life and ruined it. Yes, but he is the one responsible. And his prayer, thirdly, is a plea for mercy. Notice this. He sees God's standard. He sees his sinfulness. And what does he do? He cries out to God for mercy. He wants God to act on his behalf. He wants to be made right with God, and so he humbles himself. He says, oh God, I want to be right with you, and it's going to require your mercy. You've got to do it, Lord. And just a summary of these two men and their prayers, they are both seeking the same thing. They both want to be acceptable to God. The Pharisee stands on his own two feet. The tax collector falls on the mercy of the Lord. Well, now we see two verdicts. Two verdicts. One is justified and one is condemned. Now, justified, that's a legal term. If you're, if you're new to being a Christian or if you've never heard that term before, the Bible uses that term to be declared not guilty, to be made just in God's sight. It's to be declared perfectly righteous. What do we see here? Well, we see that the Pharisee is condemned. Now, it wouldn't surprise us that we know the story, but it would have surprised the original hearers. But it shouldn't be surprising at all. What does the Bible teach us? It teaches us in the book of Ezekiel that the soul that sins shall surely die. We find out in the Psalms, David records for us that all have turned astray. Each has sought his own way. In 1 John chapter 5 in the New Testament, verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You see, the Pharisee didn't know it, but he stood condemned in his sin, his pride, his hatred for others. Galatians chapter 3 verse 10 tells us, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. 
For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And let me just say this morning, if you're trying to be right with God on your own, on your own good standing or your own moral character, you will fall short. Romans 3.20 says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And all the good works in the world, brothers and sisters, it's not enough to wipe out one sin. A murderer could stand before a judge, and he could confess that yes, he committed the murder, but look at all the other good things he does. There's no way the judge would let him go free, if the judge is just. Now, speaking of being justified, let's look secondly at the tax collector. He went home justified. He went home righteous in God's sight. Now, this is a little bit scandalous if we, if we think about it. Here's a man who's completely lived his life in moral decay. He beat his breast, called himself a sinner, cried out to God for mercy, and he goes home justified. That's good news. Now, God can't just sweep sin under the rug, and he doesn't just sweep sin under the rug. We see something in this man's prayer that kind of gives us a clue. One, he needed the righteousness of another. You see, Jesus told this parable against people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. If you're going to be right in God's sight, you need righteousness. You just don't need yours. You need the righteousness of someone else. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came and he lived a perfectly righteous life. So that if you put your faith in him, you don't have to stand on your own two feet. You can stand on him. You can be in Christ, have his perfect righteousness. You don't have to work your fingers to the bone to go to heaven. No, you can stand on the works of Jesus. But secondly, not only did he need the righteousness of another, he needed his sins dealt with. He needed atonement. And we see that in his prayer when he says, Lord, be merciful to me. That word that we have there for be merciful, what he's asking there is for God to remove his wrath from his sin. He's saying, God, remove your wrath for the sin I've committed. And how does God do that? The Bible tells us that God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died in our place, bearing the wrath of God on our behalf. It says, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we who were sinners could be counted righteous. Brothers and sisters, if you're going to be right with God, you need his righteousness and you need his blood. You need the blood of Jesus to cover your sins. Now I want to conclude with this. We've seen the two men, the two prayers and the two verdicts. Let me conclude with this. The gospel is not good advice. You. It's good news. Now, what's the difference? You say good, good advice comes to you and says, hey, you should do this. Whereas good news says, hey, something's been done for you and it's yours. It's free. Have you ever had someone give you good advice? Maybe parenting or marriage? You're like me, maybe playing golf or sports. It doesn't matter how much advice people give you. That never made a difference. Why do people give you advice? Well, they give you advice because they see that you're deficient in some manner. God could come to us and give us good advice. You need to do this, do that, do this. We have that, don't we, in the form of the law. But that doesn't save. We can't keep the law. Instead, God comes to us through Jesus and he says, I've got good news. Your sins, which were many, can be washed away. 
Though you are red as crimson, you can be washed white as snow today if you'll put your faith in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, in conclusion, I just want to say, let's do away with the good advice. Let's stop thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. Let's stop looking at at others with contempt and disdain. Let's remember that we are all beggars at the foot of God's door. But Jesus loves beggars. He loves sinners. And He welcomes you this morning with His arms wide open if you'll repent and confess your sins and come to Him.